Welcome to Critical Thinking, Critical Issues. My name is Amit Popat and I head up Mercer's Endowment and Foundation business and our wealth management business in Europe and I meet her. I'll be your host for the next 20-25 minutes where we'll be discussing some of the themes that we've outlined in the top consideration paper for endowments and foundations in 2022 that we released earlier this year. I'm very pleased to be joined by an experienced team of endowment and foundation colleagues from around the world. We've got Rebecca Dunn, who's head of endowments and foundations for the Pacific region based in Australia. Thanks for joining us, Rebecca. Thank Gilles, you. you're going to have to help me with the surname, Gilles. Gilles Laval, based in La Canada. Voix. La Voix. Okay, I, I never did that well in French, but, but thanks, Gilles. And Corey, again, you're going to have to help me here based in the US. Travette. Trotvetter, close. Trotvetter, okay, okay. I'll tell you what, let's stick to the first names. I think that'll be the most helpful for me. <laughs> well, listen, welcome everybody. It's great to have you uh, joining us, particularly you, Rebecca. I guess it's something like seven in the morning or something for you in Australia. So, so thanks for getting up at the crack of dawn and, and, and joining us. Um, there were a lot of areas that we covered in the, uh, the considerations paper. I think there were eight themes. Look, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to cover them all today in this podcast, but I do want to get the role, ball rolling, really. I guess on a topic that is critical to all asset owners, um, particularly endowments and foundations, uh, which is inflation. And I guess not inflation on a standalone basis, but inflation with high asset prices. Um, I think from my perspective, you know, over the last five, 10 years, inflation really hasn't been a concern. And we've seen an extraordinary bull market. I think the S&P is up some 100% in the last three years or so. But in truth, you know, we're seeing supply shortages ranging from semiconductors, uh, timber, even garden sheds. Um, my garden furniture was eight months late. I had to pay an extra 20% premium and it arrived uh, in December. So I'll have to wait another four months for its use. Uh, but in truth, inflation is a big consideration. Australia, I think the headline figure, Rebecca, is 3%. Gilles, Corrie, I think in, in you know, Canada, UK, Europe, it's 5%, US, 6%. So look, if I may, what I'd like to do is, uh, Rebecca, kick off with you. And you know, in light of this uh, inflationary environment, we don't know if it's transitory. You know, is it a long-term issue that we have to consider? Now, really, what are your thoughts on, on the risk of inflation for your clients? And I think really very importantly, how are you supporting them in addressing the uncertainty or whether it is transitory or whether it's a long-term issue? Yep, thanks, Amit. Um, I guess the, the key points are, yes, inflation is definitely out there. I think everybody knows it. It's in the news. Um, it's, I've basically been a vegetarian for a couple of weeks because there hasn't been meat in the grocery stores around here. So it's certainly here for many reasons. There's lots of easy money out there. Um, governments and um, authorities believe that it is transitory. Uh, there are supply chain issues that probably won't go away in the in the medium term over the, over the next year or so. Um, and one of the things that lots of endowments and foundations are grappling with is, well, if it is transitory, then you know there's a short-term impact and we'll see it on asset prices and we'll see volatility. But if it's longer term, then what do we do? Because that does mean that there will be more significant changes to your strategic asset allocation. So a lot of it has been about stress testing um, what is the impact of short-term versus long-term inflation on various asset classes? 
what can we do about it? Um, a few things that we've talked about are things like real assets, so um, property infrastructure, um, commodities, although in Australia that is um, something that needs to be considered pretty carefully because commodities do make up a large proportion of the equity market as well. So materials and mining and energy make up a, a large proportion of our market. Um, another thing that has been considered or that I've, I've talked to clients about is, is their targets. So typically they've had CPR plus targets, so real return targets. And over the past few years, like you mentioned on it, um, we've really talked about the the expectation of returns coming down. So we've moved from that CPI plus five to maybe expecting more like CPI plus four. And the, the thing that we're talking about now is, well, that CPI component has been benign for a very long time. And at some point it may be five or 6%. So now you're looking at trying to aim for a return of, a like, of like 10 in a period where asset, class, uh, asset prices are quite elevated. So there's lots of things to consider. Um, stress testing is really at the core of it. Uh, and um, looking for asset classes, maybe private markets, things like that, that maybe don't have the same, um, same inflation, inflationary problems. Um, Gilles, I know we've talked a little bit about Canada and Australia kind of being very similar despite very different weather patterns. Um, I just noticed on your, on your computer that it's minus 17 there, which made me shiver in my, um, in my tank top. But I know it was being quite similar. How is it in Canada? What are you talking to clients about? Well, I think that the, the, the theme of stress testing is, is interesting, but I think I like to also position the inflation uh, conundrum a bit differently. Um, we, we completed a survey last year with the Canadian ENFs, and uh, what we did is we took the average asset mix of the 44 respondents, and we run that asset mix through a capital market model of 2013, which was the last date of our uh, survey, as well as 2021. And what we saw was a decrease in the expected return, a bit in line what you said about the lower expected return from seven to 5% in that eight year span. Not a big surprise. Now, for an, for an endowment foundation, that's only a portion of the answer because you need to think about what's coming out of the, the endowment and the foundation, right? So in Canada, the average spend is around four, four and a half percent and operating fees around 0.5 and 1%. So let's call it 5%. So when you had a 7% expected return and a 5% expenditure rate, that buffer at 2%, lo and behold, was pretty much in line with the target that the Bank of Canada had set for inflation between 1% and 3%. But nowadays, if you have a 5% expected return and a 5% expenditure rate, it's, inflation doesn't need to be that high to be an issue. So the concern is only about inflation showing up. It's also the environment in which it's showing up. So if you, if you only have 1% inflation over long term and, you, and you're doing 5%, you're spending 5%, you're eroding money. Now, I liked also, if I may, put in context the concern about the potentially high transitory inflation we're expecting or the central banks are telling us we should be expecting over the next few years. I am not sure it's that big of an issue for most endowments and foundation for the following reason. When they calculate that, five, that 4 4.5% expenditure rate on the asset value. It is not the latest market value. It's on a smooth asset value. So it's a rolling three-year average. As Emmett mentioned, you know, the equity markets have done tremendously well over the last five years. And that's not fully reflected in the amount of money flowing out of the funds. So if you have higher inflation, within the next few years, you have basically reserves that have been banked 
that you're slowly reflecting in an asset value. So your actual dollars coming out should be increasing irrespective of what happens in inflation. But if that inflation is high and remains high over the long term, I think that's where we're going to have a bigger issue for uh, endowments and foundation. Uh, and you're right. After that, it becomes a, an issue about real assets and whatnot. But then you also have the size of the foundations you need to consider. Uh, but we can talk about that when we talk more about uh, diversification and what, what can be done. Yeah. Uh, but uh, before I go further, maybe Corey, um, what you're seeing in, in, uh, in the U.S. in terms of inflation and concerns that uh, your clients and prospects have? Yeah, no, thanks. And, and right out of the gate, I'm going to correct you, Amit. It's uh, in the U.S. We're actually pushing 7% uh, CPI growth here at the end of the year. So I think you said six. So we got a, a little higher <laughs> uh, hurdle to, to beat there. But um, and really, you know, across the board, I don't think that anyone's really surprised that this is a topic of discussion. You know, just sitting around uh, investment committee tables and, and listening to conversations similar to you, Amit, everyone is experiencing some sort of inflation issue, pressure, uh, whether it be pent up demand, issues with, you know, supply, uh, et cetera, in their kind of day to day lives. So it's really, you can kind of feel this eagerness that just emits across the table about everybody wanting to do something and do something now within the investment portfolios. Um, and really kind of our guidance, you know, continues to be similar to, I think what's already been expressed here by my colleagues is that you really need to take a step back, don't make a knee jerk reaction um, and do a lot of that work and that stress testing and the analysis to determine, you know, what inflation protection you already have built into your portfolio today um, and determine if it's adequate enough based on, you know, what your expectation is moving forward and where inflation might be is, will it be transitory? Are we in for a hyperinflationary market environment uh, or somewhere in between? So I think knowing where you're at today, stress testing in particular for those higher inflationary market environments is key. Most of, I would say us endowment foundation, long-term, you know, portfolios have a lot of equities and, and, you know, Generally speaking, equities usually do just fine uh, and higher inflationary market environments. We know that there is a threshold where that changes. Um, but if you expect that um, that, you know, that threshold not to be breached, um, then that equity allocation generally should suit you well. Um, but again, it's really just kind of looking at where you're at today um, and, and potentially do you have adequate protection based on where you think inflation likely might go. Yeah, I, I think the inflation conversation, we talked about it very broadly, but actually what we've found in Europe and, you know, you could break down the, the impact to different types of, of charitable or foundation donors. You, there's massive differentiation between the impact for, for example, universities who had massive loss of earnings, for example, in terms of student income. Um, and they had massive expenditure. And then you think about other charities also that have uh, healthcare charities that had massive expenditure over and beyond their general commitment schedule. And I think the, 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 you could really break down inflation almost to the, the provision of what they do. Is it inflation linked to healthcare? Is it inflation linked to education? So there are layers, I think, within that, albeit a headline number that needs to be considered as you think about what type of foundation you are and what type of, um, of impact you're trying to have going forward. Definitely the stress testing from our side is, is a material issue. You know, we'd all love the Goldilocks scenario, you know, good growth, low inflation over the long term. 
but I think there's also this combination of you know what's really going to happen you know in a in a you know if, if there is a resurgence for example in the endemic situation you know what does that mean from a growth perspective and do we have even a risk of stagflation you know from that perspective so I think there's definitely multiple scenarios that we can look at and, and, and think about. But one of the areas we are spending more time on, as I said, is really trying to understand what that entity or what the Endowment and Foundation is trying to do and link the impact of their inflation exposure very specifically as, to broad, as opposed to broad market exposure or inflation risk going forward. And I think, Corey, you know, we, we've all talked a little bit and, and I think everybody's mentioned a little bit about asset classes and, and a little bit about diversification. And, and testing it. So, I mean, let's be truthful, there's no single asset class that's going to be a silver bullet here, um, you know, that will address the inflation issue as a one-stop shop. Um, but I, I do want to spend a few minutes talking about the role of fixed income going forward. I think that's a critical component across all of the uh, endowment and foundation portfolios. And, you know, again, we all know the situation, low absolute rates, low credit spreads, resulted in, a, in generally a negative you know, real yield environment. And I think interest rate risk is really offering little compensation. So leaving the portfolios very much exposed to, to inflation. So maybe on this occasion, I can kick off with, with you know, Ejil, yourself or, or Corey. It'd be great to get your thoughts on really the future role of fixed income investing in your clients' portfolios. And, and again, you talked a bit about private markets, but maybe a bit more detail. What are the changes, you know, no knee-jerk reaction, Corey, absolutely, but what are the, the, the indicative changes that you're thinking about in terms of type of fixed income going forward? I don't know, Gilles or Corey, which one of you wants to kick it off? Ladies first. Go oh, ahead, thank Corey. you, Jill. That was so <laughs> nice. Um, well, I think we can probably all agree that that, that fixed income is, is not going to be the, the solution to solve the inflation mm -hmm. issue um, based on our expectations moving forward. But um, so I think before we you know really talk about diversification and, and fixed income in particular, generally how we're guiding our endowment and foundations to think about fixed income is really getting a clear understanding of what the role of those fixed income assets are. And generally, we, we segregate those into kind of two buckets, so those being more um, risk reduction, fixed income allocations, and then those that are maybe meant to be more income generation um, focused. And so with respect to, you know, the risk reduction portion of fixed income, those allocations and have been for some time are very, very, very low. Um, within the US endowment foundation space, um, generally rule of thumb is somewhere around uh, two years of spend is generally the allocation that you have on more defensive fixed income allocations. So they're already very, very, very low to begin with. And so generally keeping a high quality uh, cost conscious approach there um, has been the direction that we're going. But then with the rest of the fixed income allocation, the rest, you know, that might be more growth oriented uh, and, and meant to grow, um, there has been a lot of diversification and a lot of focus on private assets in particular, mm -hmm. so private debt, yeah. um, those that, that might have more floating rate components built in um, as, as a way to generate some additional income, also would also help uh, with the whole inflation discussion um, as well. Um, so there's been more focus uh, on those types of allocations, um, if those types of clients can sustain that amount of illiquidity. Um, within fixed income. And I just maybe from a quick European perspective, which you'll over to you in a moment as well, but 
I mean, I, I absolutely agree. The private debt focus and and more low beta uh, strategies, absolute return fixed income type strategies coming in. I think one of the conversations we're having definitely in Europe is around the governance structure back to the private markets part of it, I think. Um, and I think a, a number of foundations have the opportunity to take advantage of the illiquidity premium, have the opportunity to go into the private debt. But in truth, some of their barriers are perceived to be around governance. You know, we don't necessarily have the experience or expertise. I mean, one thing I would say definitely in my conversations is there are multiple solutions to that and definitely don't have the tail wagging the dog. If it's the right asset class, there will be a governance solution to access that asset class going forward. So obviously, I think it's important people are comfortable with it. But I do think something like private debt is very accessible now in today's environment. And I think it's something where if there are concerns that people have, they can be very educative, but there are also simple methods to access that in terms of effectiveness and oversight. Gilles, Rebecca, how are things on your side? Um, it's interesting because uh, our distribution in Canada is somewhat different than the US because the average size of the endowment foundation is much smaller. And it goes into the governance aspect you were mentioning, Amit. So the average allocation to fixed income is actually quite larger than what Corey was referring to, which might be around 10% in the US. So that creates a different challenge because when you have like 20, 30, potentially even 40% in fixed income and we have the yields we have right now, you need to find ways to make that money work for you. You can't afford to have 10% that giving you all that much. But when it's like 30% and what we have in return expectation, that money needs to work. So it means going more to credit, uh, potentially even doing some kind of overlay strategy with leverage, getting more money at work. Um, and also creates an issue around, well, the reason why they are more in fixed income is they might have less access to those private markets because of governance reason, potentially fee reasons. And it's interesting what you said, Ahmed, because the point about, look, if the solution is right, if the, the investment strategy works for you, then quite honestly, it's not a size issue. If it's good for a large foundation, it should be good for a smaller one. There will be solution. I was making that point at a locution to the uh, Foundation Endowment National Investment Summit in Canada back in uh, back in November, and that was the you know in one sentence that was the whole point I was trying to make to them and kind of show what the impact was and how you were able to move that risk return profile uh, through that. Um, and I think Rebecca, when we were talking, that the, the the issue around size and our allocation to to fixed income uh, was somewhat similar in uh, in Australia as well. Yeah, very much so. Um, access to private markets has been uh, more difficult, uh, not just SARS, but one of the other concern or one of the other issues in Australia is that um, even real assets, infrastructure and property um, are snapped up by superannuation pension funds immediately. So there isn't as much um, stock, I guess, when it comes down to some of those asset classes that are a little bit more private market centric. And like Amit mentioned, a bit of it is about education. So talking about private debt, um, people have talked about private equity for a long time and it's been in the news and it's more um, understood, well, on a surface level, understood by lots of investors, whereas private debt isn't um, and hasn't had the same air time. And we see that it, it will get more and um, we'll, we'll get more interest but it's certainly not at the same same point as some of the other um, assets. And yeah, definitely size is an issue. One of the things that um, a lot of universities in particular look to is, is the US model and just how impressive it is that um, there's so much private market um, exposure in those, in those assets. And um, just 
it, size matters, what you can get access to, uh, what, you, what your governance model allows you to, the expertise you have, all of that can matter. And it does, uh, it certainly shows in, in Australia that um, being a bit smaller can, can create less opportunities for an investment. So we're working on it um, and there's more out there every day, but uh, yeah, it's similar circumstances to Canada. Yeah, I think, uh, and, and you know, when we think about asset classes, diversification, and again, I'm, I'm sure this is the case around the globe, there really isn't an investment committee meeting that I've attended truthfully in the last probably 18 months where there isn't a discussion on decarbonization, fossil fuel, uh, fossil fuel free investing, impact stewardship, diversity and inclusion. You know, this is, this is now a central part of every investment committee meeting. It's not your five minutes at the end or 10 minutes at the end, oh, by the way, we'll roll it over to the next agenda. Not at all, it's, it's almost one or two. Now, in truth, we don't have time to cover all of that. Um, I think hopefully maybe we'll have another podcast on that going forward. But maybe Rebecca, while we've got you, you know, being in Australia, you know, often considered a leader in some aspects of ESG, I guess, you know, um, thinking about its position in, in things like decarbonization. But in truth, of course, your index has a lot of commodities in it as well. So yeah, it'd be great to hear from you. How how are you addressing or how are your clients addressing that balance um, and and really, you know, looking to take a forward looking step to address the climate issues, but the reality of the uh, the domestic market? Yep. And a lot of uh, clients look at it from a total portfolio level. So when we start talking about decarbonization, probably start talking with global equities first, as opposed to Australian equities, just because of the structure of the market, like you mentioned, Amit. Um, the first step is always, what do you have? What do you hold? And so that climate uh, transition risk. So what is the risk from a climate transition perspective of what you have in your portfolio, rather than just saying, well, we should go ex fossil fuels. And there have been lots of movements and there's in, in Australian universities in particular to go ex fossil fuels. But of course, that, that means you lose your voice. You no longer are a shareholder. Um, it also has severe implications for your for the for financially within the Australian market in particular. Um, what's moved more recently is what governments, regulators have said, you have to report on climate risk. Um, you have to tell us what's in your portfolio and how you're addressing it. Um, that's across Australia and New Zealand. Um, and what the other more positive thing I would say is that, uh, that we're looking more at, well, what are the positive things um, that we can do about climate change. So what, what can we invest in that can help us from a, give a positive impact? Um, and not just climate change, it's moved to more social issues as well. Um, the sustainable development goals that the UN have posted are getting more air time when we talk to, to um, organizations. And it's nice to see that more positive, positive impact. Impact investing from a pure perspective isn't necessarily available to a lot of Australian um, investors. I see Jill <laughs> nodding in agreement, so I can, I guess Canada's probably the same. Um, unlike Corey, where in the US impact investing and, and Europe, um, it really has taken off. And while some people would say that the US lags in ESG, I would maybe counter that with perhaps in some of the more traditional ways, but they've found more unique ways to manage through it than, um, than some of us with less assets potentially have been able to do. Um, so yeah, it's it's been great. I think we, while we Australia has been a leader, I would say that Europe has jumped us um, in some ways through regulation, um, and the US has jumped us in some ways from impact. So it'd be great to hear from you guys as well on, on what you're seeing. Corey, do, um, what, I mean, 
Go ahead, Partisan. I was say, yeah, maybe I'll take the the other the other uh, end of the spectrum here because probably uh, overall the U.S. market in general lags behind. I would say some of um, my colleagues' regions in Australia and Canada or even in Europe. Um, with respect to E's and F's, though, I think Rebecca, your point is spot on. They've been very intentional about how they're going to approach the broader ESG landscape. Uh, and therefore that has meant more focus on impact oriented investments. So whether that's climate change oriented, um, whether that means diversity, equity, and inclusion, there's just been this really focus on complete mission alignment. So therefore less in terms of divestment, I would say, unless it's completely uh, goes against what their mission or views or beliefs are, that's when you'll see some divestment. Uh, and really taking uh, and viewing ESG investing more through an engagement or an impact oriented investing lens. So having that voice, using their voice, using their name of their endowment or foundation to express those views um, has been the avenue that most E's and F's have been willing to take. Um, you're seeing some more around divestment around fossil fuels here and there, most mostly on the university side, because you have a lot of student led uh, initiatives that are kind of uh, really um, pushing those universities to take a harder look at how they're investing uh, in fossil fuels. But that being said, most of the rest of E's and F's are, are really focusing on just more engagement, active uh, activism uh, and impact oriented investments. Yeah, and I think Jill, is that consistent for you? I mean, before I, I give my perspective on Europe, is that is that consistent for you? Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of um, again, if I, I can refer to the survey we did, I mean, just in that eight years time, twice as many of the respondents had now a separate ESG policy in place. So that it means that they're basically making their money work to to get their beliefs. So the at least those discussions, having a consensus around what the beliefs are, uh, is already quite good. And then it means that putting pressure then on the managers because say, look, this is what we want, offer me something like that. So you, you get the, the investment managers that are the one that can make those companies move because they're the ones that have the, the, the assets. And what we're starting to see, similar to what uh, Rebecca was saying and Corey, is more of an emphasis even on impact. And then there's two types of impact. One is kind of like the market impact in the sense that, okay, you have those broad global strategies that you can say, okay, let's go and get clean water in, in, in some part of the world that doesn't have it or housing and whatnot. But some of my some of my clients are also focusing, look, that's all fine and dandy, but even here we have needs. So we should have local impact as well and how we build to get that local impact. And that even even Canada getting that that you know that market impact is difficult. Getting that local impact is even more difficult. Uh, if you think about you know it's not Five million. If you're looking for thousands of social housing in, in one city, uh, it's a huge issue, like it is in everywhere else, with the price of housing going up and whatnot. So, um, yes, there's a greater emphasis on impact. I think the issue people have a lot of the time is, okay, I have those beliefs. Everybody shares it. How can I put that into my portfolio, and at the same time keep the return? Because we still need the return. Uh, it's the risk management component as well. So you're probably improving your risk adjusted returns. But at some point, um, if the market isn't giving you a lot, if you're making decisions that shrinks your pool of potential investments, 
uh, you, you have some uh, some pushback on some committee members. So there's still some indication to be done. Yeah, but I, I think, you know, I think there's a fair acceptance now that you don't need to sacrifice for impact investing anymore. You know, there are definitely enough opportunities there. Inflation linking to parts of it, you know, some of the, the housing that you're talking about has good inflation linking as well to it. So, I mean, there's, there's definitely some positive impact you can have without the need to necessarily sacrifice going forward. And even go back to our first conversation, you know, some aspect of inflation protection within that going forward, I think is, is, is critical as well. Um, I'm conscious that we're running tight on time, but um, just one comment I did want to make, um, and I, I, I don't know if you guys use it globally, but definitely we're doing a lot of work around the climate transition pathways. And I think that's a critical component. And, you know, uh, thinking about a multi-year timeframe to really get to this outcome. And, and I think that's really helping clients think about their transitionary period as opposed to this you know, immediate actions that are going forward. Um, look, I, I, I'm, you know, I can't believe that we've already gone through 25 minutes, actually. Um, I think you know, hopefully we'll, we'll have a second podcast on this. But um, look, I'd just like to thank you all, um, Rebecca, as I said early in the morning, Corey, Shield, for your time uh, and your insights has been extremely helpful. Um, I'd like to thank you, our listeners. Um, I think we've touched on, on quite a few, few aspects today. But if you'd like to see the full report, please go to the link in the podcast or reach out to your local Mercer representative. There will be an additional link or there is an additional link um, on the podcast that I'd like to bring your attention to. Uh, Gilles mentioned some of the survey. We did a great survey in Europe uh, last year. We're actually uh, undertaking a global survey now with Endowments and Foundations, and we'd love it and really appreciate it if you would spend a few minutes uh, just completing the, the, the survey on, on behalf of your organization. I think it's really great to hear the voice of, of the Endowment and Foundation and really understand how we should be thinking about their needs going forward. So again, I'd like to thank you all around the world in terms of, of, of uh, your support, Corey, Gilles and, and Rebecca. And thank you again for listening and take care. This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. It does not contain investment, financial, legal tax or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular personal and or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of publication, are subject to change without notice and do not necessarily reflect Merce's opinions. <laughs>